It has been said this, and I quote, that those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. There is an almost unbelievable truth to the statement. If you've been around on planet Earth for any length of time, it is just amazing to see how things kind of repeat themselves. Things happen. It's not amazing that common things are repeated over and over again. I mean, you know, we wake up in the morning and the sun and the moon and the, all that. Th- those things are set in stone and it, 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 those are amazing. But what's amazing is when you see these, these occurrences in history and then people don't learn from the things of history. Perhaps it's something that's happened in their own family history or in the history of nations or whatever it may be. And then to see those very things repeated and played out, it's an incredible, incredible thing. When you look at Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis, you know Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. And when you look at his letter that he wrote to Sardis in Revelation chapter three, it appears to be a, just a strange warning to them. Here it is, just jumping right into the middle of the the verse there. Revelation 3, verse 3. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Okay, so you're reading the letter and you read this and you're like, okay. Jesus wants him to wake up, you know? It's kind of like a loving father or mother to to, to the teens. Wake up, we want you to learn something. But if you will not wake up, I'll come to you like a thief. So it, it seems like it's just a kind of a routine warning to the person who does, does not know the history of that particular city. This seems like a typical warning. But here is what happened previously to that city. Sardis was considered almost an, uh, an impenetrable city. And the reason why was because it was on a 1,000-foot cliff, and it was surrounded on almost every side. And the Greek historian Herodotus tells the story of the fall of Sardis in the days of King Cyrus. Cyrus, who was the Persian uh, emperor that took control of much of of the world at that time. And King Cyrus had come to Sardis And he found the position of the city ideally situated for defense. There seemed to be no way to scale the steep city walls that surrounded the city. So he offered a rich reward to any soldier in his army who could figure out a way to get up into the city. One soldier studied the problem carefully. And as he looked, he saw a soldier defending Sardis drop his helmet down the cliff walls of the city. He watched as the soldier climbed down a hidden trail to recover his helmet and he marked the location of the trail and he led a detachment of troops up it that night when they easily scaled the cliffs and came to the actual city's walls they found them unguarded and they were overtaken like a thief in the night. So when Jesus says I will come to you like a thief in the night to the church at Sardis This is actually something that's already happened to Sardis. 
Now, one thing that history teaches us is that we don't learn from history. Curiously, the same thing happened almost 200 years later when Antiochus attacked and conquered the overconfident city that did not also at that time set a watch. And so Sardis became synonymous with overconfidence, not watching. It becomes a picture of history repeating itself. And here Jesus is in Revelation telling them to wake up and to set a watch in their life. So here's the point. History is history. And there is a certain aspect to it that, and it seems to be true, that there are certain things in history that do seem to repeat themselves. But you don't have to repeat it. You don't have to let the history keep repeating itself in your life. You can turn your life over to God. You can turn your life over to Christ and he can begin to work his transforming power in your life and you can put an end to perhaps the history of, of godlessness in your family or, or just craziness or whatever it is. You can begin to put a stop to it if you'll turn your life over to Jesus. You don't have to let history repeat itself. Now when we come to our text tonight, we're going to be taking a look at all of the people groups that came from the descendants of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And when those guys came out of the ark with Noah, they had a choice to serve God or not. Of course, their father Noah served God, but they had that choice, whether they were going to serve God or not. Shem had a choice, Japheth had a choice, Ham had a choice. And the truth is this, that every generation, every person that is born upon the face of the earth also has that same choice to just let things keep going in the way that they're going to go or to make the choice to serve God, to serve the Lord. And so these three guys had a choice and their children had a choice. And their children's children also had a choice. And that keeps perpetuating all the way up until this very moment. That everyone has a choice. And no matter what the previous generations did, the next generation that comes along has a choice put before them. And again, you don't have to continue down a path that has been perhaps laid out because of your father's choices, your grandfather's choices, or the choices of even the nation that you're a part of. You have been given a gift, the gift of free will. And you can choose to not let history simply repeat itself. You can choose to serve God in your life. You can choose to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, we come to Genesis chapter 10. What we're gonna see tonight, we're gonna see, we're gonna see the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're gonna see 70 names, 70 descendants that become known as the, this is a, the chapter, it becomes known as the table of nations. All the nation people groups of the world are descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so when we see these 70 names, they become the names. They become the people groups of the earth. This chapter is called the Table of Nations. Here in chapter 10, it is presented that from Shem, Ham, and Japheth come 70 nations that represent the whole of humanity. Now what's interesting is 70 actually becomes an interesting number 
that pops up every now and then, and we're going to get that to that at the conclusion. So I mentioned the 70 nations here, but we're going to get to that at our conclusion tonight. But you see these people groups, these nations take on a particular characteristic going forward, characteristics of that particular people group. And whatever the, dis, the differences are culturally that develop within these 70 people groups, these 70 nations, the most important issue in each one of them is, are they a people that are worshipers of God or not? What have they done with the choice? Or are they going to just perpetuate the history that has come before them, perhaps maybe the choice of their father. So tonight we're going to take a look at this chapter and see the foundation of the nations of the world, but also see the fact that we have a choice in the matter, that we can choose God over the foreign gods, the pagan gods of the nations. We can choose righteousness over evil. So let's take a look at this tonight. First, if you're taking notes, the far off can be brought near. The far off can be brought near. Let's pick it up in Genesis 10, verse 1. It says this. And you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read through the entire chapter, and then we'll just come back and go through and highlight certain points here tonight. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagorum. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodadim. And from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, and everyone, according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Let's go ahead and stop there because those are the descendants of Japheth. And we learn from the people of Japheth that the far off people, people who are far off can be brought near. This is a theme that you will see go all the way through the New Testament. And Paul alludes to this, that those who are far off from the household of the faith in God can be brought near, can be brought near into the very house of God. And this group becomes those that are far off, geographically, for sure, and we'll see that as we look at this, but also just because of the choices that are made by the, the, the descendants that we read about here. From the three sons of Noah, from these three sons, we see the formation of the table of nations in these 70 names. We've just read a few here in the first part of chapter 10. When you look at the Bible, you see that the Bible actually breaks, down, breaks people down into basically two groups. What's that? Jews and Gentiles, right? Jews and Gentiles. And so we're actually going to see the beginning of, of that idea here in our chapter tonight. But we, for now, we have the three sons. And so we're looking at the, the descendants of Japheth. We're looking at Japheth and the descendants of Japheth. And we will see that the descendants of Japheth become at least some of the Gentile nations of the world. And they're, and they're mostly, all of the Gentile nations are mostly derived from Japheth and Ham. First, Japheth. He had these sons. We'll just look at a couple of them and just bring it up to speed to you as, as to who these people are. 
Gomer, the first name there, his son Gomer, Gomer becomes what is present-day Germany or, the, or historically the Saxons. Magog, Magog is present-day Russia. According to a famed historian, Herodotus, we referred to him earlier, ancient peoples universally recognize Russia as Magog. Magog is a name that comes up, especially if you, once you get into prophecy. Once you get into Ezekiel and you get into these things, you begin to see Magog popping up again. Magog, Russia is universally recognized as Magog. Even the Great Wall of China, erected to keep out the Russians, is called the Wall of Magog by the Chinese people. Madai was his son. Madai refers to the Medes. The Medes, when you see the name Medes, is, that is of the Medo-Persian people. So that would be modern-day Iran and perhaps some of Pakistan. You see this, this war that has been always fought uh, between the Iraqi people and the Iranian people, and you say, well, what's wrong? I mean, even their names are just one letter different. <laughs> Why can't we get, call a meeting and get, you know, call a truce here? You know, it's because they're two completely different people groups that have gone out under different, um, under different dimensions and principalities. And we know, that, that, uh, you know that even when you get to Daniel, that you see that uh, Daniel prays and, and requests that help from the Lord. And the angel finally gets to him after 21 days of prayer and, and he says, well, you know, what, what took you so long, <laughs> you know? And, and the angel says, well, I, I, I did battle with who? The prince of Persia. The prince of Persia. And so there's these principalities that are over the nations that have taken authority over the nations. And it's, and, and, and it's what we see um, going forward throughout scripture. Uh, Javan. Javan is present-day Greece. Uh, Meshach is a word that is actually, is where the word Moscow actually comes from, Meshach. And so if you look in the Soviet Union and Russia, there is some mixture of some different peoples um, in, in those areas. And then I want to highlight Tarshish, because this is a name, this is a people group that comes up uh, in other parts of Scripture. There is some disagreement among scholars about Tarshish. Some, some actually say that it is England. They say Tarshish is England or the, the, you know, the UK or something like that. And then there are, are others that say that it is actually, no, it's actually Spain. And um, of all the stuff I've read, I tend to side with the scholars that say it's Spain, um, that Tarshish is Spain. Tarshish, you will remember... Uh, pops up when we get to a little book called the book of Jonah, right? Jonah hopped a ship towards where? Tarshish. And that was, it, it, was, it was as if to say, I want to get on a ship going to the furthest place. <laughs> that was to go to Tarshish was to little, I mean, if you think of Spain, think of, of where they are in, 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 in Assyria and Turkey and, and in the Mesopotamian Valley and think of Tarshish, Tarshish all the way to like, you know, the Straits of Gibraltar, okay? So to go to Tarshish, when Jonah was saying, hey, I want to get on a ship to Tarshish, yeah, give, me a, give me what ship is going to the farthest place away from here? That's what happened. And then, of course, we, Tarshish actually pops up in, in Paul's letters. And the reason is because he was called to be the the apostle to the Gentiles, and he viewed it as a, 
uh, something that was set before him to accomplish the, the very thing that he had been called to by God to get to the land of Tarshish. It was like he was going through all these lands and, you know, I need to get to Tarshish because I need to complete the job. I need to get to, to, to Spain, in other words. And so Tarshish is Spain. Tarshish, um, in that sense, Paul wanted to get the gospel to the farthest point, in, in that sense, of the Gentile people. Now, here are the sons of Japheth. But look down there at verse 5. It says, from these, the coastland peoples. Are you reading in the New King James? The coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. Okay, so you will see this phrase, the coastland peoples, or the people of the isles. And this is a term that when you see this in Scripture, and why is this, why is this important? This is important because you're going to be reading various places in your Scriptures. You're going to be having a devotion. You're going to be reading the Psalms. You're going to be reading somewhere in the Prophets. You're going to come to one of these phrases, and you're going to go, oh, but what does it mean? But what does it mean? What it, what it means is these, these Gentile people, the coastland people. Now, when I thought of it, I said, yeah, we're coastland people. <laughs> South Coast, right? The, the, the coastland people. So verse 5 from these coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. So I feel like I, you know, there's some identity there that I have with verse 5 there. The coastland peoples. Um, just to give you a, a, an example of this, Isaiah 11, verse 11, I'll have it up on the screen for you. For you. It says this, that, that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnants of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And so that is to say, the furthest people, the Gentiles of the coastland peoples. These are the Gentiles to which Paul was called to spread the gospel. These are the Gentiles that were far off that he talks of. Those that were far off, but you, you, you've been brought near in Christ. And so that's all a part of of, you know, Jesus coming into our lives and changing our history. You know, coming into our history and, 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 and kind of putting a stop to maybe the, the course of history and, and, and changing history and saying, you know what, you don't have to, to keep going in this perpetuation of history that the Lord wants to come into your life and he wants to change your history. He wants to change your destiny. You may have been far off and part of the coastland peoples, the people of the isles, Far off doing whatever they, they, they've been doing for hundreds of thousands of years. But Jesus comes into your life. And he wants to bring you near. He wants to bring you into the family of God. Now going on to the people of the descendants of Ham. I thought of this point going into here. Choose righteousness over evil. Let's go and look at verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan, sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rahamah, and Sabtaka. The sons of Rahamah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. And he was a mighty one before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, 
Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the principal city. Mizram begot Ludim and Anamim, and Lahabim, Naphtuim, and Perthusim, and Kasluhim. Yeah, you try it. From those who came, the Philistines and the Kaphtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Gergesite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemorite, the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, and as you go as far as Gaza. And then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. And these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. So, now we're looking at the descendants of Ham. And when we read through these names, and when I just read it, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, if you're familiar at all with parts of the Old Testament, as I read through those names, there were some of those names that kind of rang some bells. And the bells that they rang were the bells of these are the names, mostly, of the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of the Israelites, and therefore the enemies of God. And so, you have these enemies. Now, how did they become enemies? How does anyone become an enemy of God? God does not want to be a person's enemy. Someone becomes an enemy of God by their own choosing. They become an enemy of God by their own choosing. Ham chose. You were here last week. We talked about what Ham did and the grievous thing that he did and the implications of what he did. And if, if you're looking at me now and going, what did he do? Well, you just have to listen to the podcast and because uh, we get into it and, and it will blow some of your minds what we talked about in terms of what Ham did. But what he did was he was trying to take control of the family. Most people believe that Ham was the youngest of the family. And so Ham, in what he did, was trying to uh, take control of the family and, and God was having nothing of it. In fact, there was brought forth a prophecy, a curse, over the product of what he did, namely Canaan. And, and there we have the curse that is upon Canaan. And because we have the action of Ham, the curse upon Canaan, you have um, some things that are kind of set in motion as a result of that. And as those children are coming out from Canaan, and Canaan is having these sons, each one of those sons, as I said in the opening, have that same choice that every single person has to, 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 to love God, to choose God, to worship God, or to become an enemy of God, to oppose God. And what happened with, with them is that they kind of kept going in that, in that direction that they were headed, and they became the enemies of God. The, the sons of Canaan, known as the Canaanites. And we'll get to them just in a little while here. 
Um, but just going through some of the nations that came out of, from Ham, or, or as it's called, the Hamitic, the Hamitic people. You have Cush there. Cush is the area of further down the Nile, what would be present-day Ethiopia. And that actually is an area that is mentioned many, many times in Scripture throughout. And you coming all the way down to Acts chapter 8, when Philip has that occasion with the, the Ethiopian eunuch and actually brings the gospel to bear upon his heart. And literally he gets saved and baptized right there upon the path. And that was the beginning there in Acts chapter 8 of the, the gospel going out to, to different peoples after the, ascension, the resurrection and the ascension and the waiting there by the church in Jerusalem and all the thing, happenings up till then, up till the chapter 7 of Acts. Then at chapter 8, then you begin to see as Philip is called out of the revival there at Samaria and called down and ends up having that occurrence, that, that meeting with the Ethiopian eunuch. Then you have Mizram. Mizram is Egypt. Put, put is present-day Libya. So you have Ethiopia, you have Egypt, you have Libya. And then you have another interesting one that you'll see come up throughout Scripture, and that is Sheba and Dedan. You need to mark the, the, these people. Sheba and Dedan is really present day the area of what is today Saudi Arabia. And you will see the people of Sheba and Dedan uh, pop up in, in Scripture again and again, and especially in relation to the prophecies that we see in Ezekiel in the later chapters in, in chapter 38 and 39. Then we get down to one of the descendants of Cush, and we want to talk about this guy for just a little bit. It says, and Cush begot Nimrod. Nimrod is a person that we're going to be talking about a little bit tonight and a lot next week, okay? So don't miss next week. It's going to be a, a very pivotal message as well in, in, in this area. But you have Cush begetting Nimrod. Nimrod is a person, it says, and we'll read it here. Uh, Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, this is a little bit misleading in the English translation. Number one, he began to be a mighty one. You can trace that rabbit trail a little bit if you want to. But the word there is the gib, giburum. And it is this idea of that he, be, he, he, he um, there's some that actually attribute perhaps some supernatural activity and not of the godly activity of super, the supernatural, but not of, of, of the enemies of God supernaturally that had something to do with what happens to Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. It says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. This idea of mighty hunter is that he was there. At that time, you had peoples just kind of living out in the, the areas, and one of the main problems at this particular juncture in history was that you had the wild beasts out there, and this was a major problem. And so he was a mighty hunter, and there's some people that believe that he ascended to power because he 
dealt with the problem of the, of the wild beasts in and around the areas where the people were trying to live. And we, we see this as he's the builder of these cities and this, this, this really what becomes this early empire. And, and so he becomes a mighty hunter. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the hunter, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, I want to look at this phrase, before the Lord, because when you read this and you're kind of just reading along and you're seeing this character, Nimrod, and, oh, he's a mighty hunter and he's before the Lord, and, oh, isn't this great? Isn't this kind of a rosy situation? No, it's not so great and it's not so rosy, because really the phrase, before the Lord, it would be better in the English to say against the Lord or in, the, in front, before the Lord, in the face of the Lord. And so really... In these days, Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one, and he became really a, a, an arch enemy of God. He, he became someone that was at, at, at extreme odds with the God of the Bible, the God Yahweh. And, and so much so that we'll see as we get into it, and we're not going to dive in too deep tonight, but he actually, as he builds the cities there in Assyria and in the in the, in the uh, Plains of Shinar and all of it, what would be today, modern-day Iraq, okay, um, he, there's also the formulation of a false religious system that actually um, becomes so pervasive that it actually becomes um, copied and transferred when the division happens at the Tower of Babel when God separates the people that had gathered to do the wicked things that they were doing, and it's not just building a tall tower, okay? That what happened at Babel, it wasn't because they were building like the Sears Tower and God didn't like that because he didn't want them to get too high in the sky. No, there was something else going on, and you'll have to come here next week as we'll dive into that. But Nimrod becomes this dictator, this emperor, really, if you will, this first world dictator, and he's against the Lord. And everything he does and everything that he's got going on is really at odds and in the face of the Lord. And so when it says before the Lord, it would really be better to explain that in the English really a different way. And it says there, verse 10, in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That is what we're going to be talking about mostly next week. This idea and everything that happened at Babel and the Tower of Babel. And if you don't know, if all you know is that the, somebody was there and a bunch of people were building a tower called Babel, you need to be here next week because it's going to, a lot of it will, will blow your mind in terms of what was happening and what God did about it. And we'll touch a little bit on it tonight before, before we conclude. But he built these cities, Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kauna, in the land of Shinar. That would be Iraq. And from that, he went out, he went out to Assyria. And he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. And of those cities, one of them that you recognize is the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is one that will pop up. Again, when we get to the, uh, you get to Jonah, and Jonah in Nineveh was the place that God called Jonah to go and preach to those people that they would repent and have that choice that we're talking about tonight and have th their occasion to, to, to not let history keep repeating itself. And then Noah catches his boat, right? Give me the, give me the, the, the ticket on the boat that's going to the farthest port. Let me get on the ship to Tarshish. So you see Nineveh. Nineveh is a place that actually has come up in our news recently 
Not so much the city of Nineveh, but the city that is really right next to it on, the, on, on top of Nineveh, really, which is the city of Mosul. And if you pay attention to what's going on in the Middle East, you'll see the, the city of Mosul come up. And this is the area right in and around, in and around uh, Nineveh. Thank you. And, and so we see that what you have here with the Hamitic people... And the Hamitic nations, they become very much so the enemies of God. I mean, look at all of them. You know, from the Egyptians to the Assyrians to the Canaanites, Nimrod, and all of it. And they become the enemies of God. And this is yet another kind of, you know, pointer for us to see that we do have a choice. That we really do have a choice that each person that becomes an enemy of God, does so by their own choice. And you have, a, you have a, a choice put before you whether you're going to be in that place of, of, as an enemy of God, knowing that God does not want to be your enemy. And so the choice is up to you. And so that brings us to our last little section here on the people of Shem. Let's pick it up. Verse 21, it says this, and, chil- and children were born also to Shem, the father of the children of Eber, and the brother of Japheth the elder. And the sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxat, Lud, and Aram. And the sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Alamdad, uh, Shelef, Hazmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Adikla, Obel, Abimel, Sheba, Orfer, Havilah, Jobab. And these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was Misha. As you go towards Sephar, the mountains of the east. And these were the sons of Shem, according to the families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. And these were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So this brings us to the people of Shem. And Shem actually is kind of just another picture for us that the choice is up to us. And why is that? Because Shem is a person who chose to worship God. Shem is a person who chose to worship the name of the Lord and to worship God. And to really, Shem was one that served God. In some extra biblical material, and I want to bring this up because... And I was talking with someone before the service. There's a lot of people, when you get into the nitty-gritty of the Old Testament and you start really diving in, some people get whacked out when you bring this stuff up. Some people get you know, offended, like, no, I don't think that's true. Well, no, there's a lot that happened in the Bible. There's a lot of things that happen that a lot of Christians aren't aware of. And when you expose it to them, they have such a sanitized view of the Bible, 
that it's, sh it's a shock to their system to actually be exposed to actually what the Bible says. And, and really, it shouldn't be for us as people of God. We should be, we're, you know, the, the Christians are, we're, we're, we're called people of the book. Right. <laughs> we're called people of the book. And when the book is presented to us, we shouldn't be shocked and offended. And oh my goodness, how could it be? How can you say this? No, there's a lot in here that, that explains a lot about what happened then and what is happening right up till we're now. And if, you, if people want to stick their heads in the sand and ignore what's happening in the principalities and the powers and the demonic forces and the spiritual warfare that is going on for this place and for the people of the earth, then, you know, I guess you're welcome to do that. The choice is, the choice is yours. But I choose not to be one of those people. Amen? I amen? Are you with me? I choose to be a person who says, look, God, you, you, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. All of scripture is God breathed and is profitable for the Christian. Amen. He didn't say parts of scripture. He didn't say the parts that would be sanitized by the part, the reformation or sanitized by the, 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 the church fathers or sanitized by the people that didn't like what it said. So we'll come up with an interpretation that fits kind of our geopolitical understanding of what needs to take place. No, sanctify them by their, by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. 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 So Shem, Shem was a servant of the Lord. In some extra biblical writing, Shem is the one that served the Lord. He was a priest of Yahweh. He taught others how to worship and serve Yahweh. And this was passed down to his descendants. Look at it back here in the verse that we read, verse 21. And children were born to Shem. And how is the biblical author wanting us to think about Shem? It's right here in verse 21. The father of the children of Eber. You say, I don't know that name. That doesn't ring any bells. That didn't come up in Sunday school. That didn't come up with the flannel graphs and the whatever. And the pastor never taught us about this guy. What is this? This is actually somebody that you should know a little bit about. Because this guy, Shem, the father of Eber, Eber is the father. He's, that is the name where the, the, the word, the Hebrews, is actually derived from. And so the people of God become known as the Hebrews. And this is the very guy, the son of Shem, that this name is derived from. And the biblical author is wanting us to know that Shem was his father. And and so Shem was a godly man. He served the Lord. He was a priest of God Most High. And he passed that worship of Yahweh down through his children, namely through Eber and the, the people of the Hebrews. This is, this is the lineage that becomes the Hebrew people. Now, there are other Semitic people that are not Hebrews, really. There are other people who say they're... Jews, and Jesus says, no, they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. What's that? Yeah, read your Bible, read your New Testament, read your book of Revelation, okay? So we've got to understand this, these things so that we can understand the whole of Scripture. Now, I want to move to a close here, and how do you do that with this table of nations? 
Well, I want to do it by talking about these two sons that were born to Heber here. We're actually really one of them. His name was Peleg, right? It's a funny name. Sounds like a pirate, right? Peleg. Um, uh, Peleg, his name was Peleg. Why was his name Peleg? For in his days, the earth was divided. Peleg actually is this idea of dividing, and, 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 and he's named that because it was in the days that it was like his mom gave birth to him, and it was like, here's what God's doing. The nations, the people are being divided. Well, he's Peleg. Let's call him, let's call him this. What, how, what? what happened? Well, we're really going to get into it next week. That's what chapter 11 is all about. When this thing is happening in this empire of Nimrod and this false religious system that becomes so uh, big and concocted and now they're building this tower of Babel that is not a tower that is reaching to the sky in the sense of its height, but reaching to the sky and the principalities and powers of the air and inviting them to come and to reside with the people. And so God is having a major problem of this that's happening on the land of Shinar. And what does he do? He divides the people. He comes down and he confuses the language and he divides the people. And this happened in the time of when Peleg was born. So I want to come back to wrap it fully up with this idea, this number 70. Remember in the opening, I talked to you about that this is the table of nations and you had 70 names, 70 nations, and from these are representative of the whole of the people of the earth, the 70 nations. Now we'll get to it next week, and I don't want you to miss it, where we're going to really dive deep into this idea of what God does when he divides mankind. When he divides the people, it's one of, it's a, it's, if you don't, if, if, if you miss any I don't want you to miss next week. Anyways, this is when God divides mankind. He divides them up according to the sons of God. One of the, uh, one of the uh, scrolls from Qumran for Qudut actually gives us this reading of, of Deuteronomy 32 that, that the people, that mankind was divided according to the sons of God. And in that way, they were given over to the, the very gods that they wanted to serve, the very gods that they wanted to serve at Babel, the very gods, uh, these principalities and powers that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, that they were trying to worship, that they were trying to, to exalt above the Most High and, 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 and all of that, He's, he divides them according to that. And he gives them over to them. And this is what Paul says in the first chapter, first chapter of the book of Romans. He gave them up. He gave them up to worship the created rather than the creator. So he gives up, and we're really going to get into this next week. He gives up the 70 nations. He gives up the 70 nations. In chapter 12, we have a descendant of Shem, a descendant of Eber, whose name is Abram who's called out of Ur. And from him, he makes a people. He makes a people that through his seed would be a blessing to all the nations, the nations that in the prior chapter were given over. So God had a plan. 
Remember, God had a plan. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said that there was going to be a seed that would come that would crush the head of the Nakash. Remember the serpent in the garden. So there's going to be a seed that's going to come. He's going to do a work. Remember, we talked about that. Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, the first good news. This seed is going to come upon the earth. He's going to crush the head of the Nakash. He's going to come along. And he's going to do more than crushing the head of Nakash. He's going to crush the head of Nakash, and he's going to reclaim and redeem the nations that were given up to the powers and the principalities. And he's going to call them out from the bondage that they were put into. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he comes into the synagogue in Nazareth and they hand him a scroll and, 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 and they hand him a scroll and, and, and Jesus comes up to the podium and he rolls out the scroll and he comes to the place and he finds in Isaiah and he comes to the place in Isaiah 61 and he begins to read. And this is what he begins to read on that day. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. What captives? You say, we're not captive. We're not in jail. You have been turned over to the principalities and the powers of the air. And Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15, who came through Shem and Eber and Abraham that would bless all nations, that Jesus on this occasion stood up and proclaimed this. He rolled up the scroll. He handed it back to the attendant And he sat down and he said, today in your hearing, this word is fulfilled. What? What? I have been anointed by Yahweh to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now look at this. A little bit later, this is what Jesus does. This is Luke 4. Oh, by the way, they try to kill him. You say, well, that wasn't that big of a deal that he said all that. That wasn't that big of a deal that he said that it was fulfilled in their hearing. No, it was a really big deal. In fact, I've been to the place. I've been to Nazareth, and I've seen the pinnacle of the city where they took him out. They were going to throw him from the pinnacle of the city, but he slipped through their hands. A little while later in Luke, you come to chapter 10, and I want you to see this. And this is the conclusion. Jesus is going to do something that signals what he's come to do. He's going to do something that is going to throw down the gauntlet. It's going to be a signal to the principalities and powers of the air. He's going to do something. And it's Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Put it up on the screen. And after these things, the Lord appointed 70... 70 others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. What's this? Just a cute little verse in Luke? No. Let me tell you. Genesis 10, 70 nations. 
Genesis 11, those nations given over to the principalities and powers. Jesus arriving on earth, ready to do battle. Ready to do, he's a mighty warrior, ready to do battle on your behalf. He calls 70. He calls 70 and he sends out 70 to the exact places that he's going to go. And it's a signal to the principalities and powers of the air. What's the signal? The signal is this. I'm here and I'm coming back for everything. I'm coming back for the people that have been in bondage. I've come and I've come to set at liberty the people who stand in bondage. What bondage? Well, they were turned over to the principalities and powers in the air. You cannot read the Apostle Paul, the the epistles, without understanding what he's talking about. You've been called out of bondage. You have been set free. You have been given life in Christ. You have been called out from the very place of bondage that you were. Those places where you were, the people of the Gentiles, the people of the coastlands, the peoples that were the enemies of God, and you've been given a choice, and the gospel message was put before you that Jesus loves you, and you have a choice to be a person that's going to be a worshiper of Yahweh, and you're going to accept Christ into your heart and not let history repeat itself. Folks, you said, how are you going to preach chapter 10 of Genesis, the table of nations, I say, how are you not going to preach it? And what is being presented to us all the way through Scripture that's established? Jesus sends out the 70. Not only did he send out, you can take it down. Not only did he send out the 70 to the very very places that he was about to go, and that signals that he came to reclaim and redeem the people. Amen? Amen. But it also signals something for us tonight. It signals that he came for you. That he came for you. Because you're a part of, you part of the table of nations? Are you somewhere in the history of this whole thing? Yeah, you're, you're somewhere in the, I don't know, go to Ancestry.com and figure it out. I don't know what, <laughs> send in your DNA swatch or whatever, but you know, you're somewhere in the history of all this. But Jesus Christ came for you. He came for you. He came for you. He loves you so much. And he came for me too. And I'm so thankful for that. And I thank him every day that he called me out of darkness into his wonderful light.